HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit internationalculinarycenter.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, hey, you're listening to Let's Eat In. Today's show is at Heritage Radio Network, as usual, and I'm your host, Kathy Airway. And today's show is all about cozy, comfort, winter-appropriate food. I know a lot of people are now looking to uh, some favorite comfort food recipes, maybe from their heritage, passed down from the family. And I can think of few things that really soothe my soul as much as stuffed cabbage. And that happens to be um, a popular dish in Poland. So today I'm very excited to chat with one of the authors of a new cookbook called From a Polish Country House Kitchen, 90 Recipes for the Ultimate Comfort Food. And we have Danielle Crittenden, an author, uh, co-author based in Washington, D.C. on the line. How are you? Hi, Kathy. I'm fine. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for being on the show. And um, I know that you had, you, you know, you've been a storied journalist. Um, you mentioned in the introduction you mostly write about women's issues and that you're an unlikely cookbook author. That's right. And <laughs> my co-author as well is a, as you know, Ann Applebaum, a, a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian. So we are both very unlikely cookbook authors. But very likely writers, in any yes. sense. <laughs> so how did you fall into this project? Well, it's... It, um, we did literally fall into it, and actually Anne got kind of bullied into it by me. Mm-hmm. Um, we both love to, in our in our professional lives as journalists, we've always, I'm in Washington, and she's married to um, Radek Sikorski, who's the Polish foreign minister, and she's also been a historian, a well-known historian, obviously, of Eastern Europe. So she has lived between Poland and London and the United States. And in that life, we all love, we both of us love to cook and we love to entertain. Mm-hmm. And um, so this cookbook idea arose from a visit uh, th- that took place with um, some of her American friends, including me, going and visiting this p- country p- 
Polish manor house, which wow. is what the title is from, yeah. that she and her husband rebuilt pretty much from the ground up right after communism there fell. And um, it, was so, it was so remarkable what they had done, both with the house and also with what had happened to Poland and Polish cuisine in those 25-plus years or whatever it has been mm. uh, since the fall of communism. And so when we were over there visiting her in this house and seeing Poland for the first time, I'd been there mm-hmm. once right after communism fell. Oh. Um, it was just so extraordinary that we felt one of the best ways to capture it would be through its, uh, through its cuisine, through its cooking. And you really dig deep. I mean, you, you go through the history um, and, and, and talk about how, well, you mentioned that the, the years of communism did not enhance its reputation, that is Polish cuisine. And, uh, but you get back to, to the heritage before and, and how rich and fascinating it is and, and how many people were reliving it and, and reviving this, this really rich cuisine. Well, I think there are two ways of looking at Polish cuisine that we have, especially as North Americans. There's the Polish cuisine that came through um, immigrants at the turn of the last century and has been with us. Um, so Polish-American uh, cuisine, right? Right. Yeah. So we think of it, and I think our associations with it are quite heavy. Pierogies, mm-hmm. cabbage rolls you mentioned, but very heavy, you know, pork stuff ones and sauce. Kielbasa, um, maybe. And, and some of it also very jewish based cooking, too, it derives from Poland because so many of the Jewish immigrants who came came from that part of the world. And then there was anyone who traveled in a communist country, really anywhere, um, uh, during the Cold War would be confronted, you know, whatever the officials were telling you about the culture, that you'd be confronted with the incredible shortage of food. And um, Poles suffered like everybody else did, um, and their cuisine suffered, and uh, I joked to Anne, you know, there's always been a farm-to-table movement here in Poland <laughs> because oh, yeah. for a lot of that time, if you wanted fresh vegetables or fresh meat, you cooked it or you hunted it yourself. Forage. Um, and yeah, and yeah. so uh, a lot of that food got got in shortage, uh, got lost. And once um, Poland is one of the countries, uh, few countries in Europe right now that is really thriving economically and, and, and in so many ways, um, so they've been able to, you know, go back in time and and restore a lot of traditional Polish cooking, which is familiar in some ways to us. But I guess my own North American interest in it was, uh, but also much different and much more interesting than what we associate it with mm-hmm. over here. It's fascinating. Um, you, you mentioned about you know, having to forage for many ingredients. And um, I, I saw throughout the recipes uh, quite a lot of wild mushrooms being used. And, oh, it sounds so wonderful. And it's kind of funny because wild mushrooms are one of the most expensive things if I were to splurge at the grocery store to find. But this was actually a result of, of you know, pure necessity. Well, also, they, they grow so plentifully. And Poles themselves have learned, you know, even our photographer... I, we could run out to the vegetable garden when we were photographing the book and, like, mm-hmm. pull, you know, arugula or a potato from the garden if we needed it. And I looked at Anne and I said, how many New York photographers could, you know, <laughs> could run out to the garden and know exactly what the plant was and how to get it? So, yeah, pulls do that. And you, the mushrooms, if you look in our book, that we have a picture of all these fresh wild mushrooms, 
And the chanterelles, I mean... I'm, yeah. I was just about they, to say... It could be like $200 at a farmer's I market. I am looking at know? this like beautiful photo. So in this but, photo of like 200 or so mushrooms, <laughs> did you just pluck those? Uh, yeah, actually, oh, they, came, they came into us. And, um, but I think what the sort of interest... Is obviously we we use recipes. I my part of my role in this cookbook was to North Americanize the recipes to make sure that yeah we weren't asking you to have two hundred dollars of fresh uh, chanterelles in a recipe. You can get dried ones and they work really really well, right? And they're less expensive. But um, but that that kind of exotic. So even the per, the pierogies or the cabbage rolls were different in this way, um, and and actually really. Also surprisingly healthy. That that was yeah. also one of the great surprises for me. Was in in uh, Polish uh, cabbage rolls are known as golabki, which means little doves. Oh, and no North American person would call a cabbage roll a little dove. You'd think of it like a fat pigeon, or <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, but a little dove, no. And in fact, when you go over there, not only are they much more delicate, more somewhere between a spring roll and what we think of as a cabbage roll. But they are also filled um, with different things. So in our case, sometimes they're filled with veal. Uh, in our case, we have a recipe which uses chicken and rice. Mm-hmm. Um, you can put them in a, a light tomato sauce, but you can also, as we did, put them in a wild mushroom sauce. Yeah, and same with the pierogies. Um, they're more like dim sum. You know, you can mm-hmm. get the <laughs> classic heavy cheesy thing, but a lot, when you go to these little pierogerias, you can get wild mushroom and sauerkraut. We have a duck a recipe for a duck pierogi. Oh, yum. Wow. You can make them smaller. You know, they don't have to be these enormous uh, hockey puck-like things. Wow. So, so that was what was really fun was to take these dishes and, and, and play with also the different flavors that you get over there, like mushrooms and beets, but also vinegars and pickles right. and mustards and horseradishes and all those uh, flavors. Yeah, there's a lot of pickles and preserved foods um, throughout Polish cooking, and um, also a lot of uh, beets. I'm looking at this <laughs> recipe right now. There's beet soup three ways, and then there's summer beet soup, or or sorry, barsk, which we right. associate normally with borscht, right. um, the Russian version. But it, it really is. Um, it just means beets, correct? And it could be. It could range from all sorts of different types of soups. Well, the, the, the summer beet soup, which is hudnik, pronounced hudnik, I learned mm-hmm. a little tiny bit of Polish, um, was one of the most arresting recipes, like, to me, that I came across as sort of the North American who was unfamiliar with it. And it's like a Polish... Um, gazpacho? Gazpacho, okay. exactly. So you, you, take, you take fresh summer beets and you chop them up in little cubes and you mix it with cucumber and... Uh, dill and, and, and some fresh yogurt or kefir and you stir it all up and you let it sit overnight and it's this beautiful creamy soup that's sort of pink and streaky and very fresh, crunchy, flavorful and, and they sometimes, and this is another neat sort of Polish custom that they do with a lot of soups, they'll put a, f- a fresh boiled egg in it. Yes, I've so seen that beautiful photo. Right, so you're going through the soup and then suddenly there's an egg there and mm-hmm. you think, oh, Actually, it's a really good idea. Um, yeah, a lot of richness there to add right. to it. I, I know that that's that recipe sounds just stand out, um, wonderful, and I can see it being on the menus of of lots of you know new American restaurants around here. It has all that fresh flavors and just just pure ingredients. 
Well, right, like the Italian, you know, when, when we rediscovered in North America Italian cooking that, you know, in the 50s, mm-hmm. if you walked into an Italian restaurant, it'd be spaghetti and pizza and that kind of thing, and then suddenly there's this whole Tuscan movement, and a lot of it has come from very poor, you know... Uh, traditions, yeah. Poor traditions, because they've, they've, they've had to take some, some very simple ingredients and really extend them and make them work, and suddenly, you know, pasta isn't all covered with heavy meat sauce because meat was just not... <laughs> that right. And same with Polish cooking is that these are people that in, aside from whatever economic circumstances they've lived through, they've also, you know, they have it's a wintry, long, long winter coal culture. So you, you really ha- lean heavily on things you can preserve and you lean heavily on things like root vegetables. So um, there, are, there are a lot of cabbage recipes, um, uh, yeah, roasted root vegetables, uh, soups that that you can sort of keep with soups and stews that you can kind of keep going for days on the top of your, you know, stove. Um, but, but done in so many different and interesting ways uh, that, that that's, we found just especially sort of if we step back into our roles as modern American women with families, um, they really adapt well to uh, modern family life because, a, they're very simple. They don't use too many exotic ingredients, but they're things that you can sort of put, put a start in the morning and leave or assemble sort of quickly after school, but, um, but are, are very sort of family-oriented type cuisine. That's a fantastic point, actually. Yes, I find that, you know, and, and also they're very economical. They tend to be cabbage, right. beets, roots. Um, I, I find a lot of uh, folks at the farmer's market or, or picking up their CSA not sure what to do with the turnip or, right. yeah, you know, so the cabbage. And, um, and I feel like this, this cookbook really speaks to a lot of new ways that, um, not new ways, actually, yeah. <laughs> uh, traditional ways that, um, that are just so practical and so healthful, as you mentioned. Um, yeah, it's funny. How how do you think, or why do you think, um, a lot of these traditional cuisines were translated into the U.S. with such a heavy tome <laughs> instead? I think a lot of it to do, frankly, was prosperity. That when these immigrants came to North America, and and as you know, as we were saying earlier with the Italians, that suddenly meat is plentiful um, and cheap. You know, suddenly all these ingredients that you had to either forage out of your own earth or, you know, buy very expensively at the local market, suddenly you come to the North American economy and culture and, and it's all plentiful. So, yeah, suddenly you're putting two pounds of meat sauce on your spaghetti. And on you're a making honey- enormous cabbage rolls. And, they're on and, a honeymoon phase with meat. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and it's going back, um, and, and, and then a lot of it becomes sort of homogenized, too, that, that you know, you lose those original notes of flavor um the one one of um one of the sort of biggest hits of our book like when you talk to people who are cooking their way through it mm-hmm. they love the pickle soup like I, we didn't call it pickle soup we should we probably should have called it pickle soup but it sounded so weird so we <laughs> called it sour cucumber soup and i don't even know that that sounds any better but but my kids like my kids were over with us um when we were photographing the book and they they just went nuts for this stuff. Oh, um, wow. But the pickle soup is basically um, a potato vegetable soup with the, the pickle element that you kind of grate up and you use some of the brine in it just makes it more 
doesn't taste like a pickle. It tastes like an intensely dill, you know, an intense dill-flavored potato vegetable soup, and it's very hearty, and it's filling, and it's very comforting. Um, but it's it's but it's also different from what you're used to tasting in a in a kind of potato soup. Oh, the kids wow. always beg me to make that for them. Oh my gosh, I didn't know about that one, but it sounds a lot like the kimchi stews I've been making lately. Um, uh, so let's keep on this conversation, and we're just going to cut to a quick little musical interlude. We'll be right back ta- talking with da- Danielle Crindon. You're listening to Never in Love by the Four Lincolns on the Heritage Radio Network.org. The International Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef's Story. Check out our ICC website at InternationalCulinaryCenter.com. All right, we're back with Danielle Crittenden, the co-author of Polish Country House Kitchen. And I really love how evocative um, the title is, and and you definitely see it throughout the beautiful photos in this book. So congratulations. It's it's just, it's a revelation, I think. What's your favorite recipe, Danielle, in the book? Oh, okay. Well, we just talked about one, which was pickle soup. Um, I think one of, I I can tell you, I mean, I like so many of them, but the other two sort of standouts, and I'm going this also through my children and what they keep asking me to make and make again. One is a, a recipe that actually this one came through my husband's Jewish grandfather who descended from Poland. Mm-hmm. And he used to tell, he used to eat, he used to say every night he would eat, you know, boiled chicken. And there was nothing better in this world than boiled chicken. And we uh. hear that and you go, disgusting, you know. <laughs> now, if you substitute the word poached for boiled, suddenly uh. it, it becomes a different creature. And going through some of these old Polish recipes that Anne sent me, she found an English-language, very traditional Polish cookbook from, like, the 1950s. I was going through it, and I come across this recipe for this kind of poached chicken that mm. you then you cook it. Imagine sort of cooking a whole chicken as if you were about to turn it into chicken stock. soup. Okay. Stock. But you pull it out before it starts to fall apart, so it's beautifully juicy and cooked. Mm. Then you remove all the rubbery skin, because you know, nobody likes that, or maybe some, but we didn't. And then you take those beautiful slabs of poached chicken meat, and then with some of the broth you boil, you can boil rice or you can boil potatoes, and then you turn it into a slightly lemony sauce that you pour mm. over the poached chicken and the rice. And it is so delicious, I can tell you, because it's got all the the flavor of a right. chicken soup, but it's it's like a, a deconstructed chicken soup. I love how it sounds like a one-pot um, yeah. meal, using the whole chicken, all right. of its soup, and cooking liquid. And, uh, you know, I had a guest on this show, Tamar Adler, who wrote The Everlasting Meal. She yeah. was extolling the virtues of boiled chicken. So yeah. it's, uh, 
It's not as uncommon, perhaps. It's well, definitely I think you just want to call it poached. And, and in, our, <laughs> in our recipe, we didn't even know what to call this recipe, so we called it chicken in a pot. And it really is like a one-pot one meal because you can then you can also preserve the carrots and things, you know, as mm-hmm. well. Um, and then you're also left over with a whole bunch of homemade chicken stock, which you can then freeze. So that, that and that, again, it's, like, it's also very practical. It's very Polish right. that you would have. You know, you could produce two or three meals out of, you know, one effort. Um, and then the other meal we like, the kids love, is this soup. And it's called, in the book we call it, I think we call it sour bread soup or sourdough oh, bread yes. soup. Yum. And this, I had never, and, and Anne confirms this, you never see outside of Poland. Um, but when you have it in Poland, you think it is the greatest soup mm-hmm. you've ever had. And it is uh, made from... Sounds gross, but stay with me. Like a fermented, you take some classic sourdough bread, a couple slices, and you kind of ferment it for a couple of days. So you get this kind of runny juice from it. In some Polish grocery stores, if you're near near one, you can buy it. It's called uh, zur, Z-U-R. But anyway, it it creates a sort of sour bread dough taste, and then the soup itself is like a, almost like a slightly creamy soup with sausage and, and then this, little bit of sour bread dripped into it and um it's it's really tasty and 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 they also will chop eggs up in it if they feel like it but tastes like nothing you've had and yet is hearty and filling um and in poland they actually will uh serve it in like dugout bowls made of you know bread but here and it's and it's it's very easy to make and and it just sort of knocks people out and that's also something my kids will beg and plead with me to make that's really interesting wow so um we don't have that much time left but um i wanted to ask one last question perfect date meal what is your ideal yeah oh the perfect date meal yeah oh i've actually uh, yes i've i I know exactly i I encouraged (laughs) a man in fact i've been telling i've had to give this advice twice uh there's we have a whole roast chicken Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually in season. If you can still get clementines, or um, you basically, it's very simple. Uh, you can't screw it up. Um, you just take a whole chicken and you shove some clementines in it, and then we tell you how to make a very simple reduced little sauce from the drippings. Ooh. But it's orangey and fresh, like wonderful to have when it's cold, and you know that wonderful citrus element when it's chilly, and. People don't expect a roast chicken. It looks, it always seems like it's more work than it actually is. It's one of the easiest things in the world to mm-hmm. make, but people think it's involved. So you really, really impress someone with that. And you can just serve it with a simple salad. Wow, that sounds great. I should try that instead of lemons next time. The chicken. Yeah, try it. If you, if, if you can yeah. still find mandarins uh, or clementines, you can, yeah, you can absolutely use them. Wow. Thank you so much, Danielle. This is so inspiring, and I just love the cookbook. Everyone check it out. It just came out recently, and if you're wondering what to do with the celery roots, sun jokes, beets, cabbage, red cabbage, winter vegetables that um, are only in season um, right now, so uh, definitely check out these wonderful recipes. Um, That's about it for our show. Thanks again, Danielle. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks, everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Let's Eat In. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. 
You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.